Uh, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2, to that key passage that we have been uh, considering together in our studies uh, on the church. It is a happy providence that uh, today, uh, in which we have a, uh, a baptismal service tonight, uh, I have reached that point where we're speaking, we're looking at the whole subject of baptism. Um, that's a, a good thing. So Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll read from verse 40. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Amen. And we know God will uh, bless his word. I have an apology to make this morning, and uh, that apology is that um, I'm a Baptist by conviction. I say that because every time I preach on the subject of baptism, somebody takes offense and uh, says, oh, you shouldn't be so direct and overt uh, on your particular doctrine uh, that you'll offend somebody by speaking on that particular subject. In fact, after the last baptismal service, not the one that we just had, but the one before that, I got an email from somebody who was visiting who basically said, how dare you preach on baptism at a baptismal service in a Baptist church on that occasion? Well, I can't help it. I, I am a Baptist, as I told you, by conviction. By conviction. I believe... Uh, that the Baptist church order is the, the biblical one, and the way we do things is rooted and grounded in Scripture. And um, when you come to deal with the subject of baptism, you have to speak on baptism. So my apologies if you're going to be upset uh, beforehand. I just would like to set that in the context of that a lot of my friends, close friends, best friends, are actually Presbyterian ministers. So it is an important doctrine, but it's not an essential doctrine. I'm not one of those people who will bury myself away in a corner and hide uh, with contact from other people. As I said uh, last week, I serve on an interdenominational missionary society council. I organize a fraternal uh, for uh, different ministers to come together, and I have regularly been asked to preach at um, ministers' conferences in other denominations. So please, please bear that all in mind. I'm not a bigoted Baptist, but I am a Baptist. Okay, so my apologies for that. So we're looking at the subject of baptism, and the first thing we want to consider this morning is the reason for baptism. Why we should we exercise this ordinance as a church? Because it is so difficult, so uh, controversial, why not just leave it to one side and forget about it? Well, let me give you three, four reasons. First of all, the command of Christ. You remember when the disciples assembled uh, on the Mount of Olives and Jesus was commissioning them to take the gospel into all the world, he said, uh, um, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded. That is his blueprint for the church. The main verb is to make disciples, 
but the subordinate verbs are to baptize them and to teach. In other words, you make disciples and then you mark disciples through baptism and you mature disciples uh, through teaching. And listen, if the king of the church, if the head of the church has laid down that blueprint for the advance of his kingdom in the world, we ought to obey the head of the church. The reason for baptism, the command of Christ. Secondly, the practice of the apostles. That passage that we just read, when uh, the gospel was preached, when the people were converted, they were baptized and they were added into the church. That the apostles meticulously followed the blueprint that was laid down by their Lord, the head of the church in Matthew 28, and they carried out his orders. So they baptized them and brought them into the church. So the practice of the apostles. The third thing is the assumption of the epistles. We mentioned this uh, last week, that when you read the uh, epistles, there is this uh, assumption in Romans in Ephesians, in Colossians, in First Peter, that the readers of those letters who were Christian people in churches all had been baptized. So one of the key verses there is First Corinthians chapter 1, uh, and Paul says, is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the uh, name of Paul? And the answer to that would be, certainly not. We were baptized in the name of Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if they hadn't have been baptized, that assumption would have been wrong. So there was this underlying assumption in the letters of the New Testament that the recipients of those letters all had been baptized. And then one more, uh, the example of Christ I think this was one that I've just come to recently. Uh, you used to um, hear older believers talking about following the Lord through the waters of baptism. And uh, I kind of reacted a little against that because there was no express uh, reference to that in the New Testament. But the fact that the Lord was baptized and that he identified with us by stepping into those waters that had previously symbolically washed away the sin of those who had been repentant, and he allowed that water to wash over him, that he identified with us in our sin. Why should we not identify with him in our faith? We follow the Lord through the waters of baptism. That's why we baptize. Secondly, the significance of baptism. Well, what does baptism mean? What does it symbolize? Um, why is it uh, important? Well, it is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. If you imagine going to a shop or a restaurant and a business or a business and you say, see a sign under new management. Well, that sign just didn't pop up. There was a, a lot of negotiations that went on behind uh, that sign that transferred the business from one owner to another. A lot of illegal transactions had to be made. And so when a person's baptized, they're saying, 
I'm under new management. Baptism is the sign. It's not putting me under new management. I'm under new management. I've come to faith in Christ. I've believed in Christ, and I'm under new management. And baptism is the outward sign of that new arrangement. So it signifies three things. It declares a new relationship with God. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that word in isn't a good translation. It's the Greek word ice, which means into or towards. And it, it signifies um, our being baptized into this new relationship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, the name in Scripture uh, summer was a was a way of referring to the the some attributes of uh, a person. So um, Paul writes, "Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." That doesn't mean to say if you call Jesus, 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 enough that you'll be saved, but that you call on all who Jesus is and all who Jesus represents and all that Jesus has done, you will be saved. And to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit means that you're um, demonstrating your union with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that all that God is, that you are dependent upon him, you're relying on him, you're in relationship to him. So you know baptism wasn't uh, an exclusively Christian rite, but it was um, practiced by the Jews. And, uh, and so when a Gentile slave came into uh, a Jewish house, he was immersed and he took the name of that household. He became part of that household. The way a wife might take her husband's name to symbolize that she's in a new relationship with him, so it is that when we're baptized, we're declaring that we're in a new relationship with God. Now, remember, that's just the sign. It's not the baptism that brings us into that new relationship. That is just the outward sign. The transaction has already taken place. So it declares a new relationship with God. It symbolizes a purification from sin. So salvation is often described as, as washing, the washing of water uh, by the waters of regeneration. Paul giving his testimony in Acts chapter 22 uh, he said, uh, tells us that Ananias said to him, rise and be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on his name. So there's this element of purification. It symbolizes purification. Remember, it's the sign, it's not the transaction. It's the outward sign, but you're symbolizing that you're in a new relationship with God, that your sins have been washed away. And thirdly, you're identifying with his death, burial, and resurrection. You just turn back, or turn forward, sorry, to, to Romans chapter 6. Now, Romans 6 is an interesting passage because Paul is dealing with uh, objections to the doctrine of justification by faith. If you're made right with God simply through faith in the Lord Jesus, then, well, why not just go on sinning, living as we are 
uh, as we please, doing the things that, um, that we did before. And Paul says, don't you know that you, you've, you're living a new life in Christ? And in order to illustrate that, he points them to their baptism. So Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Don't you know what happened at your baptism? Don't you know what you said at your baptism? So that when you went down into the water, you said, you, you professed that you have died to the old life, that your old life has been buried, and that he has raised you to live a new life in him. That you're a new creature, that the old is gone and that the new has come. Not the baptism. Uh, performs that for you. Remember, it's just the sign of the transaction that has already taken place under new management. So the significance of baptism, it is an outward sign of an inward experience. The person who has been baptized or is being baptized is saying, I'm in a new relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm united to them. I've been, I'm being baptized into the name of the Trinity. Symbolizes purification uh, from sin. It's water. Water symbolizes washing. My sins have been washed away. And you identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Third thing uh, I want you to notice are the candidates from baptism. Now, all I've said before, every evangelical will agree with. They will degree, agree with the motive for baptism and the significance of baptism. So everybody agrees on that, but this is where we get into a little more uh, choppy waters. So the candidates from baptism. Now, there, there are three views on baptism. Everyone should be baptized, and that's the view of the Catholic Church, the High Anglican Church and the Church of Christ. I include the Church of Christ there because they practice adult baptism, but they say you must be baptized to be uh, a true Christian. Uh, the Catholic Church, I have a quote there from the Catechism that uh, says that uh, baptism washes away original sin and all prior sin committed uh, to bat before baptism. So that explains the panic that there is if a baby is unwell to get that baby baptized because if that baby dies and is not uh, uh, baptized, it's not going to heaven according to Catholic theology, that it washes away sin. That baptism is absolutely essential for salvation. Now, we reject that view and we reject that view. Well, the dying thief, we reject it on the basis of the dying thief. The dying thief, uh, uh, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. He received no ordinances. He wasn't in church membership, but he was promised heaven. 
The essential issue is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It has nothing to do with ordinances or church membership. It is faith alone in Christ alone. And we know that um, from Acts chapter 10, which is a, a wonderful passage because it's the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Just turn in Acts chapter 10 and I'll, I'll show this to you because I think it's important. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell. Remember, these are Gentiles fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded. He said, I want you to go away and think about it. I want you to go and pray about it. I want you to take uh, a year off and, and search the scriptures for yourself. About No, no, no. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So do you picture the scene? Here's, it's called the Gentile Pentecost, and, and uh, Peter is preaching to Cornelius' Cornelius's house, and the Holy Spirit comes. It's obvious they've been converted because the Holy Spirit has come upon them with the evidence of them speaking in tongues. That was very important for the Gentiles to realize that the gospel was for them, and it was God was communicating to them in their languages too. And, uh, and then Peter says, well, can anybody stop these people from being baptized? They have received the Holy Spirit. And so he ordered them to be baptized. So we reject that view that it's a saving ordinance. We have no truck with that view at all. The water in this tank is tap water. It's not mystical. It's not magical. It doesn't do anything other than provide a forum by which a person can identify with Christ. The second view is uh, believers uh, and their children, that it's a sealing or ordinance. And this this argument is based on the continuity of grace from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And this view says that Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and so he was. And he received the sign of the covenant, and so he did. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. And circumcision and baptism uh, parallel each other because they both symbolize the cutting away of the old life, death to the old life, and new life in him. And so when we in the new covenant come to faith in Christ, we should be baptized as believers, but not only us, our children as well. And that is a very strong argument, very persuasive argument, but it's an argument that we don't accept. Well, at least I don't accept. 
The answer to that, uh, let, let me just give you a few answers. I, I mean, even a cursory reading of Scripture would tell you that the Old Covenant is not exactly the same as the New Covenant. Uh, even on the issue of the sign of the covenant, because only boys were circumcised under the Old Covenant. And there's no explicit uh, command to baptize girls in the New Covenant. It's, it's not the same. Under the old covenant, the covenant made with Abraham, Abraham is promised the land. That that's part of the covenant, that the land is promised in the covenant promise. But we don't all head over to Israel and resettle Israel uh, as, as Christians because that was a promise made to Abraham and his descendants. And of course, under the old covenant, that those who received the sign of the covenant, covenant at the meal of the covenant. But under the, uh, the, the new covenant, that, uh, according to those who practice infant baptism, that they, they, um, give the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, but they don't, uh, permit them to eat the meal of the covenant until they come to faith. So there, there are lots of inconsistencies. But let me pick out uh, just three. First of all, the order of the uh, Great Commission. As I said, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A Presbyterian friend of mine came and said to me, a minister, he said, Stephen, I've, I've just noticed the order of the Great Commission to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. And he said, these were his own words, he says, we would need to have good reason to change the order of the Lord's commission. And so we would. Okay, <laughs> you can't just take the words of Jesus and change the words of Jesus because he is the king and the head of the church. And if he give us that order, I believe we have to stick to that order. Secondly, the silence of the New Testament. Now, nowhere in the New Testament do you read of any children being baptized. Now, you have five cases of household baptisms in Scripture. If I can remember them, you have Cornelius that we just read about. You have Stephanus mentioned in First Corinthians. You have uh, Lydia, you have the Philippian jailer. And you have one more that I can't think of. So you have five, five cases uh, but in all of those cases, bar one, we're told that each of those candidates that were being baptized, those members of the house, came to believe in Jesus. All of them, bar one. And you can take that Lydia case, because there's no evidence even that Lydia had a family, and it talks about her household being baptized. It was probably the little working community that had gathered around her. You can't take that. You can't read into it and exalt that and interpret all the other cases in the light of that. That's just not good hermeneutics, what Bible interpretation. So the silence of the New Testament. Um, there's a brethren uh, shop in Bangor, or Newtonards, a brethren bookshop, and they had a little book, What the New Testament Says About Baptism. I thought, oh, that might be interesting from a brethren perspective, and I pulled it out. I opened it, and it was blank. There was, there was nothing in the book at all. It was a, a brethren joke. 
But anyway, there was nothing in the book whatsoever. But, you know, they, they had a point. They had a point. Um, a friend of mine said to me, a Presbyterian friend of mine said, but, you know, the connection between uh, believers and children was so strong under the old covenant that they just would have assumed that. They would have just done that. There was, there was no big deal, so the New Testament didn't have to speak about that. But you need to remember that the churches of the New Testament were largely made up of Gentiles, mainly Gentiles, and they would have had a problem with it. And also, the, the theological issue that dominated the early church was that of circumcision. Should Gentiles be circumcised? Now, if baptism had replaced circumcision, Paul, Peter, or the rest of them would have written and said, well, don't you know that's not necessary now because... Because um, baptism has replaced circumcision. That would have signed and sealed the argument. It would have been over at that particular point. So the silence of the New Testament, I think, is important. The third thing, and this is where, to me, it all hinges, is the newness of the new covenant. I, I believe the new covenant is a new covenant. It's not the old covenant revamped. It is a new covenant. And I, I've, I've quoted Jeremiah 31, and I'll not take time to look that up, but Jeremiah prophesies that the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's new. It's different. And I've highlighted some of the differences that he speaks about, that this new covenant is individual. Jeremiah says, No longer will it be said that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. No longer is there going to be this generational thing, this generational consequence to the father's sin, but each person will die for their own sin. That it's the individual before God who will be held accountable for his sin and must repent of that sin. Secondly, the new covenant is internal, not external. I will write my law on their hearts. That no longer will it just be on tablets of stone, but it will be autographed by the Spirit on the human heart. The, the, the law will be internalized, and that was fulfilled in Pentecost when God poured out his Spirit upon the infant church and uh, baptized them with the Spirit, that we have the Spirit in a way that the Old Testament believers never experienced the Spirit. Because we are indwelt, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit charismatically endowed people. It came upon prophets, raised them up, and, uh, and, and inspired them. He came upon, shouldn't say, after Alex's sermon, shouldn't refer to him as it, but he came upon people and uh, inspired them and then withdrew from them. But the new covenant is... Um, it's different because we have the Spirit. And then, lastly, it's, it's spiritual. Jeremiah 31. Again, Jeremiah says, No longer will a man say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. So, 
in Israel, not all Israel, Paul tells us, were of Israel. And you would have had to say to an Israelite neighbor, do you know the Lord? Are you walking with the Lord? Do you know the Lord? But no longer that's the case. Because in the new covenant community, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And actually, that's why you can't separate your doctrine of the church from baptism. Because if you baptize non-Christians into the church, you'll have to say to the non-Christian, do you know the Lord? But we believe in a, a gathered church. So the candidates for baptism, uh, we believe that it's believers only, uh, that we reject that covenantal argument. I've quoted there Adoniam Judson, who was a missionary, first foreign missionary from America who went to Burma, and he was going to meet William Carey, the famous Baptist missionary, and he thought he'd better brush up in his arguments on baptism on the way. And uh, while he was on the ship, he, which in those days took, of course, months uh, from America to India, but while he was on, on the ship, he came to Baptist convictions. And he wrote this. He says, Am I henceforth to be regarded as a weak, despicable Baptist who hasn't the sense to see the connection between the Abrahamic and Christian systems? But we see the connection. We see that Abraham was saved by grace. But we believe that the new covenant is actually a new covenant. Uh, so you have um, three views on baptism, that it's everybody should be um, baptized because it's a saving ordinance. It's a sealing ordinance that uh, children of believers uh, should be baptized, sealing them into the covenant that in the hope that one day that they will be saved. But we believe that baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward reality, that, that the person who is baptized is simply declaring that the transaction has taken place, that God has saved them by his grace, and now they're putting that sign out, they're nailing their colors to the mass in symbolic form, in verbal form, they're they're uh, in, in, not in verbal form, but in, in, in uh, poet, um, uh, uh, um, illustrative form, they're showing their faith uh, in Christ. Uh, the last thing uh, I want to deal with is the mode of baptism. Why go to all this trouble of either going down to the beach, down to the river, or having one of these tanks constructed. Surely sprinkling is much easier to do, or pouring perhaps. Uh, why not just do that? Well, let me give you some reasons. First of all, the, the language of the New Testament. We need to understand that the word um, baptism, as it appears in the, the Bible, is not um, a translation, it's a transliteration. So what they've done is they've taken the Greek word baptizo and they've put the English letters, equivalent English letters beside it. So beta, alpha, they put B, A, and pi, P, and so on. And they come up with, with, with baptism. So it's a, uh, it's a transliteration. So uh, in Greek, there were distinctive words for sprinkling, for pouring, and for immersion. 
there were those words. And baptism, baptizo, means immerse. Uh, you can go to any Greek lexicon. You can look that up for yourself, and you'll see that that's the ordinary use of the, the word. Now, um, some of our covenantal friends, they, they turn to uh, places like where it says about Abraham and Lazarus, and uh, Abraham, Lazarus asks uh, that Abraham might dip his finger, and they say, well, that wasn't a complete submersion. But we use the word dip in, in a, a metaphoric uh, sense as well. Metaphorically, we, we use it in that way. But the ordinary usage of the word is immersion. And then the use of the prepositions in the New Testament. In, in, uh, if I can see this, in those days, uh, Jesus was baptized by John, uh, ice, that word ice, into the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, they went down into the water. When they came up out of the water, we're told that when uh, John was baptizing, he baptized at Eon because there was plenty of water at Eon. And all that, uh, the use of the preposition, the plain meaning of the word, indicates that the primitive mode was immersion. And then the practice of the early church, um, archaeological evidence is overwhelming, and I say that uh, for emphasis, overwhelming that the primitive mode was immersion. And there are some uh, fonts that have been evacuated, uh, uh, excavated, uh, that show that that's the case. Um, in fact, the oldest piece of literature that we have outside the New Testament, the Didache, um, prescribes immersion. It dates from 200 A.D. So it, the primitive mode was immersion. Um, you see that too in the practice of the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, you know, the Greek or uh, the Eastern Orthodox split from the Catholic Church in 1054. Uh, we think of the split in the Catholic Church coming at the time of the Protestant Reformation, but there was a, a split before that between the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church. And, uh, and uh, one of the accusations that they made against the Western Church was that they ransized their babies that they sprinkled their babies. And if you've ever seen my great big fat Greek wedding, that film, you'll know that fellow when he was baptized, he had to be baptized by immersion. There's a lovely uh, picture floating about on YouTube of a Greek Orthodox minister baptizing uh, a baby by immersion. <laughs> he plunges it in and he lifts it up and he plunges it in and he lifts it up three times. Uh, because they insist, and remember, the New Testament was given in Greek, they insist that the right way to administer baptism is by uh, immersion. And uh, the scholars uh, of the New Testament that we respect from different traditions um, acknowledge that too. John Calvin, quote from the uh, Calvin's Institutes, the very word baptize signifies to immerse, and it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, who was a free church minister in Scotland, a great scholar, the original meaning of the word baptism is immersion. 
And I could go on and on with quote after quote where people acknowledge that was the case. But you say, well, that's okay, but is it really necessary to go to... Oh, here's one more quote. This actually comes from this Roman Catholic catechism. So it's a Roman Catholic catechism, and if you can read it there... Uh, it says, up until 1300, A.D., 1300, fonts were designed to allow baptism by total immersion. Uh, but you say, is it really necessary? Why, why go to all that bother? Sure, the important thing is the baptism itself. Well, you see, in, in um, a sprinkling or a pouring, you have, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have that identification you have that element of, uh, of um, cleansing and washing because the water is present, but you don't capture that death, burial, and resurrection motif. And I, I think that that's, that's a vital element of baptism, that I've died to my old life, that that old life is gone, and I have been raised to live a new life in him. The last thing I want you to notice uh, is the challenge of baptism. And and I I just want to ask you this question. If you are a Christian, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Now you may say, I was baptized as a baby, but according to what we've looked at this morning, can you in all good conscience say, yes, I have been baptized? A lot of my friends in good conscience can say that, and that's fine. But I'm asking you this morning personally, can you say that? Have you been baptized? Secondly, could you be baptized? If baptism signifies this new relationship with God, if it signifies um, the washing away of your sin, if it signifies that you have died to your old life and you have been raised to live a new life in him, uh, could you be baptized? Are you a Christian? Are you converted? Don't get all caught up in the ordinance and forget the main thing. Remember, the, the, the ordinance is a sign under new management. The transaction has already taken place. And then, if you have been baptized, are you living out the implications of your baptism? Are you living out the implications of your baptism? Are you living a new life? Are you denying self? Are you crucifying self? Are you walking in fellowship with the Lord? Because that's what you've confessed. That's what you've professed at your baptism. Is that true of you? Has your heart grown cold? Have you wandered from the truth? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. At baptism, you promised. You promised to live a new life in him. You, you made a covenant with God. I hope you're living up to the implications of your baptism. Amen.